Motorcycles and Misfits, coming to you live from the Recycle Garage here in sunny Santa Cruz, California. That's right. And it you was, just hold on. And it long. was a good sunny day today. Yes, it was. But we're not just coming to you from Santa Cruz, California. We have guests. That's right. And we have stunned misfits from all over the country, from all over the world. And... Who's here with us? Hey, everyone. It's Miss Emma. Hello, darlings. Aloha. Thank you for joining us tonight. And yeah, so we got some stunt misfits joining us. Uh, first up with his a really cool toidle in the back. It's Mike. How you doing, Mike? Hello. It's great to see everybody or hear everybody. It's Mike from what is cold and foggy Southeast <laughs> Missouri. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And also joining us, a stunt misfit number two, it's Chris. How you doing, Chris? Hi, my name is Chris, and I have a small motorcycle problem. I ride too much. <laughs> I'm from, from Philadelphia, but I'm presently sitting in a hotel room in Paducah, Kentucky. Paducah, Kentucky. Woo. Right on. I know. Exactly. Well, hey, we had a, a great day in the garage today. Lots to talk about, but I want to get straight to our guest tonight. Um, you know, I told you that I've, I've made a list of people that I really wanted to interview, and we've been going down the list. Uh, we had, you know, Debbie Evans. That was a big one for me, some, someone I've been trying to get for a while. And there's someone else who's been on my list for a while that I finally got through to, and I have her here tonight. So I want to introduce, this is a special one. Let me just say, this is somebody who... Um, had a world record has uh been like on tv and here's the biggest thing the coolest thing because how many people can say they had a toy made in their likeness not many so i want to introduce the great debbie lawler hi debbie hi thank you so much for allowing me to come on and share my story it's uh been awesome i've been thinking about it all week so i am coming to you from ripley west virginia yeah uh, my husband and i have been traveling around the country in our rv looking for the perfect spot to retire and we are looking up here to buy a farm Ooh. you know it's funny you should say that debbie um i was because everyone's listening to this but we can see one another and I was looking behind you and I thought, she's speaking from inside an RV. And I didn't <laughs> want to say anything because <laughs> it's like some people live in their RVs and they're very, very proud of them. And I wouldn't want anyone to think, oh, she's living in an RV. But you're obviously in an RV. But what a great adventure. Yeah, well, we ha we still have our home in uh in uh, Texas. We live uh, right outside of Dallas in Toole, Texas. And, um, but we have been looking for the last two years and we have a home in Mexico as well. But as you know, borders are closed. We can't go down there. So, but for the last two years, we've been looking all around the country 
and you know i wanted to find the perfect spot to retire and you know just kind of enjoy life and also we have been looking for the perfect place to you know host motorcycle rallies for women yes because on my agenda for for many years and so uh, i think that we found the perfect place it's actually a little town called spencer west virginia and it is the most beautiful place I have ever seen in my life. Right now we're in Ripley uh, in our RV because they don't have an RV park. Um, so we're really new to RVing. I mean, we've RVed every once in a while, but not, we've been now in this RV for three weeks and, and we're ready to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> very close. <clears throat> Close quarters, you know, we're just not used to it. But it's fabulous here. I mean, every day we get up and we look around, it is absolutely exquisite. And we really hope that, that we can find a farm here and put together what we want to put together a, um, a motorcycle rally for women. You know, they have Sturgis and I would like to do something, start something here. So that's kind of what we've we've decided to do. That that's been on my bucket list for many years. Well, well so we're pursuing that. I'll need. To, I'm going to have to talk to you uh, later about that because that's something I'm working on as well. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, we might need to team up on this. Yeah, I yeah, would yeah. love that. Yeah, I'll talk to you more. Um, I love that. That's your goal. But you know, you said that you are retiring, which means you've you've been on this. Uh, earth a few rotations now i'd like to go (laughs) way back to the beginning of your motorcycle career as we call it because you had what i think what a lot of us wished we had you had a parent who rode who not only did they ride they were they were a pretty good rider so how good of a rider was your dad my dad was really a really fabulous rider. Yeah. I mean, he he raced in everything. He raced in the Heron Hound. He raced in the Baja Thousand. And he raced not only motorcycles, but he raced dune buggies. Uh, we started out, actually, uh, my father built a go-kart track for us. He had three daughters. My brother was uh, not conceived yet, so he had three daughters, and he thought that's where... That's what he was going to end up with. That's what he had to work with. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he had to work with. So he just decided, okay, I'm going to make them just tough as a rattlesnake, and they're going to follow my path. (laughs) So, Debbie, can can I jump in here? Because I I, I rolled off the production line in 1962, and that was quite a pivotal year for you, wasn't it? Because while I was basically a newborn that's the year you got your first motorbike from your dad wasn't it uh i think so around that time yes uh and actually it wasn't my motorcycle you know we we were a my we didn't have a lot of money we were i would say lower middle class but we had a lot of fun you know my father always bought a lot of toys um he was a builder and he literally would 
you know, work in the summertime because we lived up in Oregon. It would work in the summertime. It's too cold to, to build things in the winter then in Oregon. And um, then we would, you know, play whenever we wanted to. So he would be working and then he would take off two months, work, take off two months. Right. And we would travel, go down to Mexico, Rocky Point, just all over. And this is in Grants Pass, is it? Because yes, Grants Pass, Oregon is where I was born, yes. Right, and I know that area very, very well. That's right on the Rogue River, isn't it? Beautiful neck of the woods. Absolutely. Just gorgeous. Um, so we moved to Medford, Oregon, when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, I went to uh, Medford Middle School and then Medford Senior High School. And um, we moved in my junior year to Arizona. Mm. But all that time, you know, we were riding motorcycles, uh, doing a hill climb. Are you? Mm -hmm. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm too chicken to do that. <laughs> hill climbing, fast track or flat track, and motocross. Okay. Um, so that's kind of what we did, and we had one motorcycle. And we shared that one motorcycle between all of us. What what and was my it? Sister, um, you know, I was trying to think the other day. Mm -hmm. I think it was just an, an old Yamaha, like a Yamaha mm -hmm. Scrambler. I I can't really remember. I mean, we he had everything. We had yeah. BSA. Um, <gasps> he had everything. <laughs> I mean, what whatever he could afford at the time, and. Um, they were always used bikes. He was always buying used bikes because we couldn't afford new bikes. Right. But um, it was an incredible life. He really gave us a fabulous gift for, you know, the outdoors. I mean, he took us hunting. I remember I shot my first gun when I was about eight years old. Knocked me right on my butt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we really had a lot of fun. Uh, so I really thank him. And, of course he was always pushing us and he was always pushing for the tracks that we were riding at to allow us to race against the men. Right. And of on. course, you know, they weren't going to do that because right. back then it was totally powder puff and men, you know, mm -hmm. women and men, you didn't ride together. You definitely did not compete against each other. And my father was always fighting them for that, you know, um, I can't remember the year. I believe it was 1969, but I'm not sure. My sister Barbara, her name's uh, uh, Barbara Warren now, but uh, my sister Barbara was, I think she was 16 or 17 years old. And she had been uh, racing in the men's division, and she won uh, open expert division. Right I mean, on. against men which was really incredible. Um, and I was always kind of in the background. My dad would always, when my sister would finish, she had so many trophies, by the way, that it lined a whole room all the way around on top. My father built this little ledge all the way around the room. And there, there were trophies for everything. Um, Go-karts, motorcycles, you name it, they were <laughs> on that ledge. And I was kind of just in the background because I, I was two years younger than she was. Um, but I love to ride. And at the end of the day, dad would always say, you know, after my sister was finished racing, he would say, here, take the bike. You can go do whatever. So 
I really don't even think my dad realized that I could ride and how well I could ride because I was pretty quiet, pretty shy little girl. Wow. But you got, you, you started pretty young, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't really remember. We, we've been trying to do that because, you know, we're working on, on my life story, my oh, book nice. and, and my movie too, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're, I'm trying to remember all these things. Of course, you know, I'm ancient right now. (laughs) But you were like like somewhere like like 10 to 12 years old, right? When you first started? Yes. Right. Yeah, 10 or 12 when I first started with motorcycles. And then you started Um, racing just a couple years after that, right? Yes. So you were were Uh, in there early. I was in there early. and I really didn't race like my sister did, mm-hmm. uh, because again, all the attention, you know, was on my sister, and rightfully she was a, an amazing rider, um, really amazing. Uh, and I really looked up to her and just really thought she was the greatest thing since sliced bread. She just was fabulous, and you know. I guess when I started jumping motorcycles and had the opportunity when that came forward, I was so stunned that it was me, not her. <laughs> I guess that's what I could say. So, um, Debbie, the, you said there were three sisters. So we talked a little about you. We've talked a little about Barbara. What about the third sister? Did she race motorcycles too, or was she content to sit on the sidelines? She is six years older than I am, and she was and still is just a phenomenal artist. Mm-hmm. My mother was a professional artist, and so okay. she, of course she yeah, she knew how to ride and she did ride, but you know she she had other interests, and I, you know both of parents were really wonderful in allowing us to follow follow our dream and so she um at a very young age, started doing different types of art, uh, oil painting, watercolor, and she is really incredible. Actually, both of my sisters, um, now they, they're both artists. My sister Barbara, that was the racer, she's a metalist, and she works in metal, and her sculptures oh, wow. are just <clears throat> over-the-top beautiful. Yeah. So I'm the only one that didn't have all the... Uh, <laughs> All the little gifts. So, so you don't you don't have the talent that your sisters have. So you just had to like set a world record. Yeah, but you got the toy. They're they're making a movie of your life. Take that, Barbara. (laughs) 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 But um, so you went from being like this, uh, as you said, being being raised to be tougher than a rattlesnake. Yet you also found your way into becoming a model. So you weren't all uh, spit and dirt, were you? You probably cleaned up no. pretty good. <laughs> when I was uh, when I moved to Arizona, you know, of course, when I would uh, go home after riding and clean up, soak in my tub, and daydream, which I love to do, uh, I would daydream about being a model. But you know, the reality is, five foot two. You know, I'm not 510. I'll never be a model. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought, if I can't be a runway model, then maybe I can do some other type of modeling. And uh, 
I always, I had very pretty hands and I always thought, well, I could maybe be a, you know, hand model um, for commercials or things like that. And so lo and behold, I was working in, and I was trying to think of the name of it the other day, the store, I think it was called Woolworths. And I was working in the carpet department um, and I was 17 years old. And this gentleman came in and, and I was helping him. And he asked me, you know, have, have you ever done any, you know, photographic modeling? Um, I said, no, not really. And what he did was, uh, and his name was Kenneth Connors. And he owned a company, Kenneth, Con- Kenneth Connors Graphics, too. And what he did was um, he worked for different magazines like where magazine those different magazines small little magazines newspaper and so he said you know would you like to do some some modeling you know um kind of like kind of like a commercial but Mm -hmm. you know for newspapers and i really wasn't sure what that was you know i'd never been exposed to anything like that so um he invited me to his studio and i went to his studio um on a Monday and he took a few shots of me and then he said, I'll call you back. And he called me back a week later and he said, you know, I've got a job for you. And I, I went in and it was, uh, I can't remember. It was just in a small little magazine um, that I think was going to hotels. I can't remember Mm -hmm. now. And um, I was just holding this, pamphlet up that was it <laughs> and that was my first uh, ah, claim cool. to fame. <laughs> and then but, uh, yeah, it paid the bills and I really enjoyed it and I also did some hand modeling which I always thought that that would be cool so I had the opportunity to do that I really enjoyed it but on the flip side of that I was still riding my motorcycle yeah. and so it was really um one day I came in and I had been out riding in the desert and had a good spill. And, um, you know, I was skinned up. I took a really good tumble. And I forget what we were shooting that day, but I had little scratches all over me. And they were, you know, trying to blot it out and put makeup on it and fix it. And he he was really angry. And he said, you know, you're costing me money. And he said, you need to make a decision. This motorcycle or, you know, modeling. And I, I think, mean, I just love motorcycles. I think history tells us how, what you decided. <laughs> yes. And I have a really interesting story. My, my father's, uh, my parents were divorced when I was 12. And my father, uh, his girlfriend that he was living with, uh, she came in one day and I was just turning 18. And she said, you need to get your head out of the clouds on this motorcycle thing. She said, you need to go and get a job like everyone else and, uh, you know, work as a receptionist or something like that. And I just, that just kept in the back of my head, I just kept saying, I do not want to do that. I just can't see myself doing that, just being enclosed in a room 24-7. I just, I just couldn't do that. When you're in the desert and you're riding, it's just amazing. It's just the feeling of freedom. You're you're going, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour, just all out, straight out, you know, jumping uh, washes and 
it just gives you such a euphoric feeling. It's fabulous. Well, and fortunately so. for you, about that time <laughs> in history, there was an opportunity to make money as a writer and not and to make more money than you do as a model, right? Enter, Emma, this is where our friend Gary Davis comes in, sort of. Gary! Yes. Yeah. So remember Gary told us about his jumping partner when they would, he and Rex, and they jump and at each other? Yes. Well, they had a manager, Charles Samples, and they decided to leave him. And he wanted to make good money because this was a big thing at the time, remember? not There was not just evil. I mean, there was a lot of people out there jumping over cars with their bikes, doing stunt jumps. It was a huge thing. And he was looking for the next it, the next big thing. And guess who he came across? Was that you, Debbie? That was me. There you go. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so if it wasn't for Gary... <laughs> you wouldn't have had that career. Absolutely. You know, I um, I did my first show with a thrill show called uh, the Johnny Brower Show. Johnny Brower Thrill Show. And 1973 at Tucson. That was my first jump. And um, for Bob Huff. And I was jumping just 10 cars. And so, just 10 cars. of course. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, they asked me when I, I made the jump, they said, and I really never dawned on me that I was really the first woman. I, it really, I really didn't understand that. As a matter of fact, when we were packing a lot of our stuff, um, you know, to put in storage and then to go on this, this big, long adventure of ours now, I came across a lot of my paraphernalia because I'd been looking for it for the movie. Mm -hmm. And I came across an article and they asked Johnny Brower, they said, you know, so, you know, this is a thrill show, but you have this woman. And he said, you know, to my knowledge, I believe she's the first woman in the world to jump motorcycle. And not until that point did it really hit me that I was the first woman doing it. I mean, it, it really hadn't dawned on me. Uh, and I met Charles Samples right after that jump. Um, he contacted me and asked if he could come over and talk with me. And I said, sure. And he told me that he had managed uh, Rex Blackwell and Gary Davis and that he had moved on and he was now looking for a new act. And he said, you know, I would really like to take you to the next level. You know, he said, he said, you know, not to take anything away from the Browers, he said, but, you know, you're just part, you'll just be part of a thrill show. Mm -hmm. He said, but if you go on your own, you know, the focus will really be on you. And he said, being the first woman, he said, there's no telling really what will happen. Now, so, I got a, I got a question for you. When you're doing these jumps so we talking we've talked to a lot of people when you talk to somebody like debbie evans she'll tell you that uh you start out small and you keep working way big and get a little bigger and bigger and so that you really are safe and prepared and know what you're doing and then you talk to someone like gary and it's like now you just kind of line it up <laughs> you just aim and go there is no practicing you just do it i'm curious which method did you use 
so for me, and and I think that you know, of course, I I don't know Debbie Evans would would probably love to meet her, but um, for me, uh, I always practiced, and of Good course dear. back then, I mean, I I know that evil, you know, he used to just jump by the seat of his pants, yeah. and I know. Uh, Rex Blackwell very, very well. I actually actually jumped against him uh, for CBS uh, for the, you know, world title. Yeah. Um, he won. <laughs> but um, for me, I wanted to make it look perfect. Yeah. So I practiced all the time. And what I did, you know, obviously the same thing. I mean, when I first started, no, no one can really tell you what your speed runs are going to be because there's a, a difference in everyone. Mm -hmm. You have different weight of motorcycle. You have different body weight. Everything's different, right? So no one can really tell you how far, if you're going 60 miles an hour, how far that's going to propel you. And also, all of our ramps were always different. Now, wow. most of the time... I think uh, everyone had the same, uh, like a 30-foot down ramp, six feet wide. That's what mine was. It was 30 feet long and six feet wide. Um, and I think my up ramp was about 20 feet, is what 20 feet long and, and six feet wide. Uh, and I had a, a heart painted on my down <laughs> ramp, pink, and I had a stripe on my up ramp right in the center. And my goal for me was to land exactly in the center of that heart. Uh, and that's mm. how I trained. And wow. what I did was would increase my speed, you know, five miles an hour. And then I would write it down, increase my speed more, write it down how far I would go. And that's how I started. And that's how I practiced. And that's how I learned. I, um, can I talk a little bit about your bike, Debbie? Yes. Because I think your bike of choice to do the jumps was a Suzuki TM250, which is a great bike. I mean, it's got plenty of power for the time. Now, was that your choice or was it the promoter's choice? Um, well, I had a I had a Yamaha, and that's really what I was jumping mm. with was oh, with okay. a Yamaha. Uh, but when I first started. But, uh, you know, Suzuki picked us up quickly. Oh, okay. And, yeah, Suzuki picked us up quickly, and they asked me if I would ride, you know, just stock. And I said, sure. I didn't really need anything else. I didn't need to tweak it in any way. So it was just a, a, a 250 Suzuki stock TM. So, yeah. you know, nothing Great special. bike. Great yeah, bike. I've got a yeah. Yeah, the physically, they the TMs were quite physically big um and you know of course compared with the modern stuff now it's a dinosaur and pretty heavy <laughs> but at, at the time this was this was a high power bike it so, had a uh, lot of torque yeah 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 good machine okie dokie so you had a nickname that was given to you i want to know the story uh -huh. behind how you got the name the flying angel Actually, a news reporter gave me that name. Um, they had taken a picture in the newspaper, and somehow behind me, the light, it almost looked like I had a halo. It was the weirdest thing. 
And so the newspaper reporter said, you know, you're in this sport, in an all-male sport. And he said, you're, you're so tiny. You know, 5'2", 102 pounds. I mean, he said, you're just tiny. And he said, you don't look like a motorcycle rider at all. <laughs> he said, you really look just like an angel. You look like a hand and model. He said, you look just like an angel and he said you know that's what you need to be called the flying angel and it stuck and that was very early on in my career um and so it stuck and they that's what they called me was the flying angel so i have to think though um what an ego bruiser you were back then to be, you know, outperforming many men on your bike and to have, you know, to be as pretty as you were then. How how were you treated by men in the Liza, she still is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Let's see those hands. Let's see those hands. Oh, she still got it. She still got it. <laughs> so yeah how were you treated how were you accepted into the motorcycle culture then you know um it was it was very rough mm-hmm. um there I, I remember uh when mr samples tried to contact uh a aac agagenian and uh, because I wanted to jump at the tracks at the places evil, you know, I had a course in my brain. And because, of course, evil, you know, he was being interviewed by Howard Cosell. And they asked him, he said, you know, what do you think, evil? This this young girl, this young 19-year-old girl is, is jumping motorcycles. And, you know, evil said, oh, you know, she needs to go back and play with her dolls. And he said, I can mm. spit farther than she can jump. And, um, you know, he said, she needs to leave this up to the professionals. Well, in my mind, I felt I was a professional. You know, I would get up in the morning and I, my morning started at five o'clock. And because I had to be physically fit and I was so small, right? Um, I would get up in the morning. I ran two to three miles a day. You know, back then, they really didn't have gyms for women. Um, I went to Gold's Gym for a while and then John Cole's system and worked out uh, to strengthen my upper body uh, for long jumps. Um, And I really wasn't accepted by everyone. The news media loved me because I was doing something, you know, that no other woman had done in an all-male sport. Right. But that didn't mean that I was was getting or or uh, garnishing the respect from men because it wasn't happening, especially the promoters. And Evil mm. had everything kind of tied up. Um, and I really think that he felt in the beginning that I would just be a flash in the pan, one jump, two jump, and that was it. Uh, I don't really think that he realized it would catch on so quickly. Um, which which it did. Um, but in the beginning, we had a hard time. I mean, we were not accepted in all tracks. Um, and then when I would fly in to, to meet, you know, the owners of the tracks, I remember one time, uh, I think I was flying into Detroit, and the um, 
owner of the track had sent someone out to meet me and they were picking me up from the airport and he had a sign up and it said Debbie Lawler. And this guy was pretty big. He was like six, two and he was looking all over and I just saw the (laughs) sign, you know, coming off the plane. And so, and of course at the time I, you know, I, would fly, I would wear blue jeans, a little t-shirt, my hair in pigtails, tennis shoes. I mean, I, you know, was really never a fancy person. Mm-hmm. And so there I was, I looked like I was probably 12. <laughs> and um, he was looking all over and I came up and I tapped him and I said, excuse me, are you looking for Debbie Lawler? And he said, Oh, yes, I, I am looking for her. And he looks back, he's kind of looking, and I said, well, well that's me. <laughs> and he was so shocked, you know, he was really shocked. And he was looking at me, and he goes, well, um, I just expected someone different. And mm. I said, were you looking for, for tattoos, or were you looking for a woman that was much larger? And he goes, well, actually, yes. Yes, Mike. <clears throat> yep. No, I, you're muted, I'm Mike. Gonna, there you go. Hold on. Mike's jumping in. So, so, I, so, Debbie, I mean, with that kind of resistance to your presence in in the jumping world, I'm I'm curious. As hard as you had to fight you and your sister early on, I'm wondering if that kind of helped give you the strength. <laughs> Prepared to keep her. Going. You know, <laughs> I don't think anything can prepare you for evil. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you. You said it exactly. No, nothing can compare you for evil. Oh, yeah. uh, but, but you know, of course, he did a lot of wonderful things for me too. Mm. So I really have an immense amount mm. of respect for him. Um, but no, nothing can really prepare you for that. But for sure, I watched my father fight constantly, mm. Mike, and it was always, you know, give me a chance, give me a chance, and so. That's what I said in in the beginning. Um, you know, we cut our fee down sometimes to, you know, five thousand dollars just so they would give me a chance. But every single place that I jumped, it was a sold out crowd. Right. And so, you know, after a while, they want to make money, right? Mm-hmm. So um, then the the jobs started rolling in, and and the offers started rolling in. Well, I'd like to hear about. Uh, February 3rd, 1974, in Houston. You're 21 years old, and uh, this was a big day for you. Did you, uh, were you like, were you nervous about this jump, or was it just another jump? Uh, No, I was really nervous about it. I mean, we actually had a lot of, we had a lot of things leading up to that that had happened um the fbi we were in chicago the fbi actually had contacted my manager charles and said that there had been a threat against my life um you know there were a lot of people that didn't want me to break evil knievel's record it was a really big thing and you know even back then they said that they bet on us in las vegas i don't know if you were aware of that or not Mm -mm. But um, there was a lot of money exchanging over that if I was going to break his record. So the FBI, you know, told my manager, you know, we're going to watch her. We're going to make sure that, um, you know, she's safe in these jumps. And in fact, uh, in Detroit, 
um, I was jumping indoors and somebody threw a beer bottle at me and um, it went it went right through the bike, which was crazy. But, uh, you know, I ended up laying my bike down there. Mm. Um, and I was, you know, of course, I was on polished concrete, so it made it a little bit easier. Um, but we had this threat against us. And, I mean, that was in the back of my mind the whole time. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm going to be making this jump, but, you know, and... You know, I don't know if you realize, and I think a lot of people don't realize, um, I equaled the record that night, but the next day I was supposed to break the record, mm. and someone had tampered with my motorcycle. What? And I make, yeah, I usually make three passes. On the third pass, I would always go. Um, my manager, you know, would give me the thumbs up, mm. thumbs down if things weren't right. Um, and it was all thumbs up. Everything was great. And for some reason, I still to this day don't know what it was in the back of my mind. Something's just telling me I wasn't ready. You know, maybe, and I really can't remember if my speed wasn't right, but I kind of jumped off the side, you know, off the side of the ramp. And as soon as I jumped off the side of the ramp, my bike quit. Mm. Um, and when I, when I, when my manager got to me and actually I'm trying to think of my mechanic's name, I think his name was Galbert. Um, he came, you know, I mean, the bike wouldn't start again. So there's no telling what would have happened had I gone over. I mean, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. Yeah. So now it was established that someone had tampered with the bike. You know, even though my manager said that no one had been around the bike, um, you know. Wow. I don't know. Wow. I don't know how that happened. So then they had to, obviously, I didn't set the world record. Mm -hmm. And so they had to schedule it for the next weekend. So that's why when you look in the Astrodome, right. there's, it's, it's kind of empty bleachers, right? And that's why when I jumped and equaled, um, equaled his record, it mm -hmm. was 64,000 people there. I mean, there was not one seat left. Uh, but then the, the following weekend, uh, because people flew in from all over to see it. Right. Um, no, it wasn't just local Houston people. They they came from all over. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that, but it was pretty scary. Um we still never knew, and to this day, I don't know who did it. Um, and to this day, I don't know who made the threat either. Um, wow. <clears throat> well, and, and as being one of the most successful jumpers, the problem is that we learned from, from Gary Davis is if you make it look too easy, if you're too good, you make it look too easy. I'd like to know, so when you're setting the record, which was, I believe it was 16 cars and it was the indoor record. I want to know. Right. So um, what was the, the big dangers? Cause I'm thinking indoors, you don't have that much run up speed or run off off area. So what was that like? Did you have things you had to like, you had to stop at a certain time or things to look out for? Uh, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's very astute for sure on your part. Uh, I had to build a down ramp 
going into the Astrodome mm -hmm. uh, uh, because it went in phases. You know how concrete is broken up and it went in phases going down. Uh, and, of course, a car could go down there, but to try to get a motorcycle, I mean, and you're hitting, you know, 70 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, you're, you're flying through the air. So what I did to alleviate that was literally build a wooden ramp that I put that made everything, you know, the same level going into the dome. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a good thing. And then after, when I made my jump, after in the Astrodome, there's no way out. I had, I went into like a dugout and I had to duck my head. <laughs> if I hadn't ducked my head, I would have been decap decapitated. <laughs> so you can see in the wow. picture when I'm jumping yeah. that I duck my head down. <laughs> There was so many things whirling through my mouth. And, and then I had to lay my bike down um, into a bunch of big foam cushions that we had to stop. So basically you know, the jump get, was the easy part. It was the takeoff and, and the exit. That right. was the danger. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, wow. And you know, the other thing too, I mean, there's a video of you doing jumps and you make it look so perfect and easy. But I want to remind everyone that there were a lot of people doing jumps at that time, and there were a lot of people who died. Because one of the things you think about, the gear was not doing a lot. Can you tell us about the kind of gear, the safety gear that you had? Uh, everything, uh, including your lucky bra. <laughs> uh, you know, Bates leathers. Um, of right course, on. back then, everybody was using Bates leathers. And, and to this day, too, I mean... I think that they made and still do make one of the finest sets of leathers that I've ever seen. And for, for me, uh, you know, I didn't want a two piece, uh, zip off. I just wanted a one piece and, you know, I wanted to be able to move around in it. And I told him when I went in, I said, I want it to be exactly, you know, so it feels like my skin. Of course, mm -hmm. you can't really do that with those, you know, heavy leathers, but they did a great job. And um, I asked them to put extra padding in my knees, in my elbows, the places that were important uh, for me. Uh, you know, if I, if I were to go down, I wanted those places, you know, have a little bit of extra padding. And so in my leathers, and I, I also have it on my hip, on the hips, I had a little extra padding uh, put in. Um, but, I had that. I wore a kidney belt underneath. Mm. Uh, so I had a kidney belt on. I usually had a pair of uh, <laughs> like shorts, underwear, whatever. Yes. Um, and then a t-shirt. And of course, my not always did I have my lucky orange <laughs> bra, but um, after a while. But, you know, you get very superstitious. Mm -hmm. um, when you jump and everything goes right, especially on these long jumps, then, you know, I practiced a lot. And so um, I forget where, forget where I was um, in relationship to where I found that orange bra, but um, I had just bought the bra, Vanity Fair. I still remember, I still mm -hmm. have it, a Vanity Fair bra. <laughs> and... Um, it was bright orange, pretty, and that day I think I j had jumped 130 feet in practice, wow. and um, I was so excited about that. 
And I said, okay, I'm going to keep everything the same because if I keep everything the same, then all these other jumps will go smooth. And I said, it just must be this bra. And I was joking about it. And I can't remember if I told Spanky Spangler, um, Spanky and I were great buds from the time we were 19. I was 19. I met him when I was 19. And um, of course, he was, you know, with Rex Blackwell also Mm -hmm. uh, for many, many years. And I can't remember who I told or how it even came about, how it got out. But after that, I mean, I would even put on my leathers the same way you know uh left foot in first and then right foot i mean you just get crazy like that but it was interesting i was talking to aj foyt the race car Mm -hmm. driver and i don't even know how that came up but we started talking about that and see he doesn't want anyone to wear green around him (laughs) the day of the race so a lot of a lot of race car drivers um my friend Mark Donahue as well, very superstitious. Of course, he, you know, passed away. But um, so I guess it rubbed off. I don't know. But that's how that orange bra came about. But yeah, the gear, I mean, it's basically for abrasion. There's nothing that's going to help you with impact. Um, and and there were a lot of people who, who died. Just uh, the helmets really didn't do a lot back then either. Um, it, it was a dangerous sport to be in. But on that day, uh, you did finally break Evil Knievel's record. How did that feel? You know, in- incredible. It was the most incredible feeling. And, and one of my favorite photographs is when I'm coming out, um, coming out of that tunnel. And I couldn't, I pulled my bike back up. I laid it down into the mattresses and I, you know, got back up put the bike back up got on it cranked it i couldn't get it to go and i couldn't get it started and the guy chris economaki from abc said do you hear them they're screaming for you he says just run out just forget your bike (laughs) and so we just ran out and so my whole pit crew all of us we just ran out and it was really the the most incredible feeling um ever we ran out into this just echoing all over you couldn't even you couldn't hear anything it the crowd was so loud just roaring and chanting my name i mean it was really incredible um i couldn't believe it just the greatest day of my life really did you as you're just looking at the crowd and just soaking it in did you turn and say that's for you barbara (laughs) 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 showed you (laughs) <laughs> i'm trying to figure out who was your bigger nemesis evil or barbara <laughs> you know probably both <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, i love that but you know my my sister i mean i really respected her as i did evil uh you know evil was really he had a different persona around me i mean in one respect he was this tough living you know he kind of reminded me of a you know in the 1800s he would have been the pirate on the pirate ship right (laughs) and that's kind of how i saw saw evil but but really toward me he he really was not like that i mean 
in the beginning he was, but I think I earned his respect. And um, many times in the middle of the night, you know, I would receive a call, Debbie, yes, this, uh, he would go evil. Uh, just that quick, you know, Debbie, evil. Not this is evil, but evil. And so I received one of those calls uh, in relationship to my toy. When Kenner Toy nice. um, had approached me and they were going to do my doll. And we had been going back and forth, back and forth. They were only going to offer me um, one and a half percent royalty fee. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And really, Charles Samples, it was way over his head, too. He really never dealt with anything like that with Gary Davis and Rex Blackwell. He didn't have the sponsors like I had. I had so many sponsors. It was just crazy. Um, and so he really didn't know, you know, how can you prepare yourself for that? There wasn't an Internet that you could jump on there and say, what is an average thing for a doll for a royalty fee? You know, it was nothing like that. So we get, I get this phone call in the middle of the night, and he said, I understand Kenner Toys is giving you a hard time. Now, how does he know that to this day? I don't know. Uh, he knew so much about <clears throat> me, you know, that I never figured out how he knew. But I said, well, yes, you know, we are. And he goes, well, don't worry about that. I'll handle that. Well, the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Corky Steiner, the owner of Kenner Toys. And he said, you know, we're going to change your contract and we're offering you, I think it was three and a half percent of royalty fee, which was crazy. And I, I said, wow, thank you. So I knew that evil had put, you know, had make that he, he made that happen. Oh, that's so, pretty cool. Well, and I'm, it, I'm, it was I'm, very cool. Um, I'm glad we got onto the subject of the toy because I wanted to talk to you about it. You've only got half the picture there, Liza, because Debbie's toy came with something that the evil Knievel toy didn't. The the Do tape, you know what the that tape is? measure. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. You could measure that jump. So, I mean, did you ever get any feedback about who was buying the toys, Debbie? Was it primarily bought by girls? Oh, hold on. I think I can answer that question. And I had the answer here for for those who are, you know, listen, you can't see what I'm holding up. What I'm holding up is an advertisement, as I'm going to say, from a catalog that is in the girls' uh, toy section because it is dollhouses it is an iron board for little girls and it is the debbie lawler action figure and motorcycle i absolutely love that this was in the girls toy section with these other toys that is so cool well i want, want to tell you something that you probably haven't heard before actually when they designed that toy what i asked for was a doll, like a Barbie doll that had clothes that you could interchange. Yeah. You know, I wanted girls to have a real doll that you could change the clothes on. Oh, and the right. doll that they sent me when I flew up with my attorney, Mr. Coffee, it was a doll on a motorcycle that you could take the helmet off and the clothes off. 
And then the next thing I knew, when they were launching the doll, they sent me um, the ticket and I went up to launch it. O.J. Simpson was there. He launched his toy as well at the same time. And it was a doll, all plastic, all one piece. Mm. So it, it, they, they, they switched it around, which I really wish they would have done the other doll. So, you know, and to this day, well, I have been talking with um, Jay Horowitz, who owns the Ideal Toy Company, and he owns a lot of different toy companies. And we are actually talking about that, reissuing my toy, but in the, in the way I wanted it to be, where you could change the clothes and everything and have it in everything Debbie doll. Because I did so many different things in my life. We might um, know a guy who'd be interested in that, mightn't we, Liza? We might know somebody, yes. Again, <laughs> you know? uh, this is yet another thing I can talk to you about after this. Yeah. Yeah, we might. Uh, but I'm kind of guessing the tape measure tells the story. Because if you think about it, let's, let's suggest for a moment, right now, amongst the five of us, there's three girls, two boys. Mm -hmm. So let's suggest that Mike and Chris bought the evil Knievel toy. Oh. And then they'd make the jump and go, that was awesome. I know where you're going because we all know men, but then boys are yes, terrible at measuring because they all think going. this is six inches. Right. Yes. <laughs> so the girls are going to buy the Debbie Lawler toy and make the jump and then get out the Debbie Lawler measure yes. and prove it was better than the boys. So I, I think it's just wonderful. <laughs> okay, so I have to tell you, I was doing the Margaret Trubin Cup show. She had an Evil Knievel doll and we had my doll. And we... we had them on the floor and we pumped them up. It was in New York. It was the uh, morning show. And guess who's guess whose motorcycle went farther? Mine. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. I loved it. I and she loved it. She absolutely loved it. Well, so you had that world record. You you beat Evil Knievel, but not for very long. I believe it was a month later, he came back and beat beat that record with 17 bikes. And uh, But he, he, he had you in mind when he did that, didn't he? I think he sent you a gift. Uh, well, he actually, I had jumped at uh, Ontario, Ontario Motor Speedway. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been, I was supposed to go on the Johnny Carson show the next night. And um, then I had booked also the Mike Douglas show uh, a week later. And, of course, we all know I crashed at Ontario Motor Speedway. And, um, well, I, I really didn't crash. Uh, I made the jump, but my handlebars, which a lot of people don't, don't know, I mean, you can see it in the photo, broke. Oh. Uh, on the right hand side you can kind of see it because you can see me almost tucking and rolling trying to get away from my bike because i realized when the motorcycle when the handlebars were broken that i had to get away from the bike and so that's what made that accident so horrific 
was because I made the made the jump, landed the bike, but then had no no control over the bike. And so of course I tucked and rolled because everything was happening so fast off the wrong side of the bike and hit that cement retainer wall. Yeah, and there's there's video of this you can see on YouTube. Right. And yeah, you can see you yeah, did you make can... the landing. Uh, 146 yeah. feet, you made the yeah. landing, but then you bailed off to the side. And unfortunately, right. as you were bailing, that also caused the bike to turn right. And there was a wall along there. Like, was this a drag strip, I think? Was it something like it? It looked like the kind of wall you see at a drag uh, it strip. It was at the California 500. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Yeah, it looks like yes, a, a low yeah. concrete wall. And you and the bike were heading towards it. And you had to try and bail. But you still hit it. And you sustained some injuries there. Yeah, I broke my back in three different places and had a lot of internal injuries. I mean, I was out of it for like three days, totally unconscious. Um, when I woke up, I had tubes <laughs> running out of me everywhere, had a lot of internal bleeding. And, um, you know, they weren't sure if I would ever walk again um, because my spinal cord had, had been um, uh, injured, compressed, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't weren't really sure how extent uh, of injuries I really had, and uh, so anyway, it was just kind of a guessing game. But I decided to do the talk show with Mike Douglas, and so I couldn't take a normal flight because I was in a wheelchair, and I couldn't set up. I had a brace on from my neck all the way down to my pelvis, and. Um, so Mario Andretti was kind enough to fly me over there to Las Vegas to do the Mike Douglas show. And guess who showed up? Evil Knievel. Wow. He came walking out on stage. I'm, I'm sitting there with Mike Douglas and we're chatting back and forth. And um, he said, you know, I have a surprise for you. And I didn't have any idea who it was. And it was evil. <laughs> and at that particular time, so we, we did the talk show. It was fantastic. He was so sweet, so kind, of course, so handsome. And, uh, you know, he was so kind to me on that. He said, you know, we've all been there. You know, we really, we know what you're going through and, you know, hang in there. I mean, fantastic, encouraging words. And there was this guy that, and I, thought it was really strange this little guy was kind of following us all over after we finished the talk show you know we went out into the casino and um we went to to get a bite to eat this little guy was kind of following me my manager was you know pushing me in the wheelchair it was the furrier it was the las vegas furrier evil had contacted him and told him that he wanted to make me a custom mint coat and so when he broke my record back, he and his lovely wife invited me to the Portland Coliseum, and they um, gave me the coat uh, as a gift for him breaking my record back. And it was um, on the inside flap. It says, Happy Landings, Evil Knievel. Oh, that's pretty so cool. So it's very special. Yeah, what, a a, coat, what a beautiful. sportsman. What a sportsman. Absolutely. Absolutely, he was. And when you did that 
interview with him as a surprise guest, that was right around the time of when People magazine interviewed you at home. And you made that rather rash claim about the ships, didn't you? That you wanted to jump over a couple of destroyers. Right. <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at first they told me, I think they really considered it at first, and I thought it was going to be, I actually thought it wouldn't be that difficult. You know, if they're tied up, right? Yeah, right. I what could go I wrong? Could do that, you know. I mean, uh, but of course, the military said, eh, "We're not doing that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting <clears throat> that you dug that up. <laughs> well, we know all about you, Miss Laura. <laughs> we know all about you. Um. But, I mean, that was pretty much the end of your jumping career, wasn't it? Was that the end of your time on motorbikes or just in jumping? No, I actually jumped three more times. Oh, uh, really? Because okay. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, number one, I really, I really wanted to do it to get back on so I wouldn't be afraid. That was mm. really important to me. And But, you know, we had a six-month six month period that passed between that because i wasn't able to walk and right. you know when i when i went back to arizona um i hired a private nurse and um a occupational therapy team and basically they would come in and all the equipment in my apartment that you saw in in the spread in people magazine mm -hmm. we had the whole living room set up in there and um they would come and they would help me and i would you know every day get a little bit stronger and a little bit better because i really didn't know and and to be quite honest i was frightened i was yeah. frightened that you know m my fate was going to be like that of other motorcycle jumpers you know was i going to be paralyzed forever and for me i wasn't going to take that i just said no i'm going to walk and right. i'm going to do it but it took me a little bit longer than what I, you know, had anticipated. But um, so after that, I jumped at uh, Tempe Stadium and I jumped in New York. And I was trying to think the other day, I jumped a real small venue with my attorney, Don Harris, because about that time after my motorcycle accident, um, I had problems with with Charles Samples, actually, um, you know, some things were said that he said. And then when I went to, you know, pay my bills, my hospital bills, which were crazy. Um, and going into my bank account and everything, you know, um, I realized that I didn't have the money that I thought was in there. And so my fiance at the time, his name was Frank Hughes. He was a professional hockey player. His attorney, Don Harris, in Phoenix, Arizona, said, you know, let me look into this. And so he summoned all the books and everything. And, of course, Charlie wasn't going to turn those over. And he got a court order, turned them over, and realized that he had been embezzling. Oh. And it was a really a sad thing. And, you know, I had the opportunity uh, 
So I met with my attorney and the IRS. They were there and some other people were there. And I mean, I really had the opportunity. I could have, you know, put them behind bars or whatever. Um, but there's two sides to every story. And for me, it was never about the money. I never jumped because of the money. I was jumping because I was doing something I really, truly loved mm -hmm. and a sport that I really, truly loved my whole life. And I was hurt that, you know, I was already giving him 50% of everything I made, which was unheard of back then. Yeah. Most managers really only got 20%. And, and we I already so know you were making less than your male counterparts doing the same stuff. Yeah. Oh, sucks. absolutely. Yeah. Evil was making, you know, my Astrodome <clears throat> jump, I made $50,000 for that jump. Um, but I made a lot more than, than the other men. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a lot more uh, from what I understand. I never knew what they were making until many years later. But, you know, I was making really good money, but not in comparison to what Evil's, Evil was making. He'd make, you know, half a million dollars uh, for a jump, and I was lucky to get 50000 mm -hmm. And I was doing the same distances. So, uh, indoors, so, not outdoors. Um, so, so, yeah, you might get a question. So, Debbie, you talked a little bit uh, about indoors. I I'm curious because your Houston jump was indoors in the Astrodome and then your Ontario jump was outside. And one of the things I read about as I was looking at, at, at this was you had a tailwind in uh, that yeah. jump and that actually kind of messed up your... And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences between jumping indoors and outdoors. You know, indoors, of course, you can control everything. Uh, I mean, not everything, but the, the majority, because you're not dealing with the elements. Uh, you're not dealing with things like that. When you're outdoors, there's so many different things to deal with. You know, sometimes it can, you can all of a sudden get a light rain, even though, mm -hmm. you know, the forecast might say no rain. All of a sudden, you're getting a light rain. You know, what do you do? You know, I... I carried tarps. I'd cover my ramps up the best that I could. I mean, I did things like that all the time. Um, outdoors on Terra Motor Speedway, uh, even the race car drivers that day were having a difficult time. I know um, AJ Foyt had come and told my manager, uh, and my father was there also, and he told my father, he said, you know, we're having problems, you know, with the cars, you know, even racing there, it's so windy. Right. And, but my manager did not, he didn't tell me that. And he had the option when you're jumping, you really can't tell, uh, you know, how the wind is because you've got full, full face helmet on. Um, you have full leathers on, you can feel it a little bit, but not like they can, you know, cause it was really pulling their cars all over the place. Uh, you know, you're going in a straight line and not until you make that jump are you 35 feet up in the air, you know, so you're really not going to know. And that is what is so critical about a manager. You know, he would would line my ramps up to make sure, you know, I was going to come out on the other side uh, exactly where I needed. Because remember, your landing ramp is only six feet wide. That's yeah. not very wide. When you're jumping such a huge, huge gap. And that's what people don't understand now. They see all these young jumpers and they're jumping 300 feet, you know, uh, but they're jumping ramp to ground. 
yeah. and they've got a 200 foot span. It's different jumping, uh, you know, 150 feet like Gary Davis and Rex Blackwell, who they were just crazy, incredible jumpers. Um, I can yes. relate. At the age of 12, I attempted a ramp to ramp <laughs> jump on my Schwinn, which was quite unsuccessful. And probably one of the worst injuries uh, that occurred as a kid. So I know, ramp to ramps. That is tough, man. That is something I think every kid learned that lesson at some point in their life. Ramp to ramp jumps. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think I was only jumping three feet. It still, it still scarred me for life. <laughs> but did you get that wonderful euphoric feeling? That's the important thing. No, because I came up short. My rear wheel caught caught and threw me over the handlebars. And oh, yeah, no. yeah, it was bad. <laughs> and it was the day before family vacation. So my parents were pissed. I remember I come into the house and my mom's like, get out of here. You're bleeding all over the carpet. You know? Yeah, yeah. Ramp to ramp jump. Everyone has to learn that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so you it was your career lasted a few years but then you decided to get out of the the business as we say you know uh, after after uh, i found out that you know charlie was um you know embezzling i, yeah. I guess the whole thing the really the the crowning the crowning blow was when they threw me my birthday party they threw me a big birthday bash, and the attorney showed me where I paid for my whole birthday uh. presents. And I was so upset over that because for me, I'm a very, I don't know, true blue person. Yeah. Like <clears throat> you were taking, being taken advantage of, and risking your yeah. life, and risking my life. And I so I just, I just felt like, I just felt like that was enough. You know, and I also felt like I, I was retiring at the top of my field. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really, I thought, you know what? It's a great time to retire. I'm walking. I'm able to walk. I'm, I'm walking away from it in one piece, which it could have been a different story. And I've done well. I'm proud of myself. Um, you know, after that, when I quit, I went and did the women's superstars with Billie Jean King. Mm -hmm. They had 20 of the top athletes at that time in the United States. And, of course, I, I went right into that right after I started walking. I knew I wasn't going to do well because you have the best athletes in the world, basically, competing against each other. And, you know, I was no match for them. They were amazing women, and all women. Uh, I don't know. Um, if you have done any research on that, but it was mm. the superstars with the first superstars and Billie Jean King and her husband put it together at the time. And it was really fantastic. And she was just an amazing, amazing woman. Um, and I really loved that. Of course, I finished like second to, I think Janet Guthrie, who I should add at that time was the first, the real first female, um, driver in nascar right it wasn't dana kapatrick it was janet guthrie and she was fantastic and i think she she finished after me <laughs> 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 so, anyway but just the camaraderie 
and to be around these women that I admired so much and all of them were so incredible, so gracious, really amazing. I, I want to, you know, hope maybe Billie Jean can hear this podcast and maybe <laughs> she can, uh, recreate and just do like a some kind of a talk show getting all those women together because it really was a first they had never done anything like that before so i got a question for you so it's been uh over four decades since you walked away from jumping (laughs) um how often do people want to bring it up and talk to you about it or did it just kind of did that part of your career just kind of go to the background as you went on with your your life You know, there were different times of my life where it didn't crop up because I'm a very private person. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you walked into any of my homes, there was I never had anything out, any paraphernalia, because for many years I I was I don't know I had been in the public eye and it was fantastic, but I didn't always like people knowing what I was doing. I remember one time I went out with, um, he was a baseball player. His name was Johnny Bench. And we had <laughs> yeah, gone we've heard of him. We had, you know, had a fantastic time. And the next day, literally, it was in the newspaper exactly where we went. Mm-hmm. Johnny Bench and Debbie Lawler were seen at so-and-so. And, you know, <laughs> I, did, I didn't really like that. Right. I, I've always been pretty private. And so I never really told anyone, um, you know, I never really told anyone. And, and when I remarried, I took on my husband's last name and I was married for 21 years and no one really, only a few people knew, only our, my really closest friends. When I got my divorce, I decided it was time to be who I was and I I took my name back legally and sat down pen and paper and said, I'm going to be the person I was before and enjoy the things, you know, um, the person I married was really not into sports. I mean, I loved every, I love every sport. I played golf. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a bad golfer either. I wasn't a scratch golfer, but my handicap was like 14. Um, I love to shoot pool. I, I did um, uh, like road racing, like California 500 and stuff. Nice. I had an XKEV12 and I raced cars for a while. I, I love stuff like that. I just love all motorsport. And, you know, I wanted to get back to who I was as, as, as the person I was before I was married. I think a lot of times when you're married, you take on that, that other mm-hmm. person's personality a little bit, you know. So, and I was actually going to draw a parallel to a friend of ours who's also been on the show. And, and, and uh, have you heard of Elsbeth Beard by chance? No, I haven't. So, Elsbeth oh. Beard, uh, back in the early 80s, she was the first woman to ride solo around the world. And when she set off to do this trip, she told a lot of magazines and, and was looking to get sponsors, and everyone didn't really believe that she could do it. 
and and just referred to her as like, yeah, good luck, little girl, you know, and it took her a few years and she came back. And by that point, she didn't think anyone cared because of she was a woman and men didn't want to hear about it. And she put her journal away and all her photos away and she went on with her life and her had a child and a career. And now it's decades later and suddenly it's like the world is ready and they want to hear about it. And there's people started asking, didn't you do this thing? And she came out with her book. I guess it was like a year or two ago now. Uh, she came out with yeah. a book and suddenly now she's on the circuit going around and, and speaking and telling of this amazing thing she had. Because it's like now the world is ready for a woman to be great. And I'm wondering if you find any parallel to that also. I totally have seen that. Um, over the last three years, uh, and that's what I was going to tell you. I, I feel like now I'm back. I'm back to who I was before. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've remarried, but I kept my name. I have an incredible husband, too, by the way. Yay. And, um, you know, he allows me the latitude I want in doing whatever I choose. And over the last three years, I've, I did a commercial for uh, Under Armour. Uh, which was an amazing commercial. And then I did another commercial for Luna Bar. And I did the Live Evil 2. Um, and, you know, they just opened up the museum in Bend, Oregon with uh, Kitty O'Neill, which I'm so honored to be. I was just going so to say. be with her. And just to prove that the world is ready now, you're being featured in the High Desert Museum. And you said with uh, Kitty O'Neill and... Evil Knievel. And Evil Knievel and you. And it's and an amazing display. And guess, you guys, guess what is on display in this museum that you can go I, see? I know what's on display. What is it? Go ahead. Well, among other things, there's a wonderful photographic record of your jump still by still, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at the stills now. And it's it's very, very easy to see why you were such a great motorcycle jumper. Your form is perfect. The bike looks great. You look great. There's all this blonde hair cascading out from under your helmet. I mean, you're a star, darling. You're an absolute star. Debbie, tell, tell everyone what else is on display at the museum. So... My gold helmet, I was one of the first women in the world to ever receive it. It was given by Premier Helmets. And, of course, the I'm in company with, uh, I believe, A.J. Foyt, um, Mario Andretti, Ivan Majors, I was the, and Al Unser, uh, all racers. And I was the first woman in, to ever receive the helmet. It's a 24-carat helmet, so they have that. Wow. And it's life-size. And then um, my Evil Knievel's coat is there. Yes, the main. My leather support. <laughs> and my orange bra. <laughs> and ah! my toy. So they have it all. <laughs> um, yes. I want to, I would like, like to ask you a couple more things. The one about evil. Um, I've no doubt that you have seen. Viva Knievel many, many times. <laughs> um, I really haven't. <laughs> you, oh, oh. So you, you might not know the answer to this because 
In the movie, Viva Knievel, there's a woman called Tracy Butler, and I think that's you. It, it actually was supposed to be me. There you go. And then he, and that's very astute <clears throat> on your part, and I believe, was that the one with Sam Elliott? Yeah. Yes, so I was invited there when they were filming it, and I met Sam, and which which absolutely one of the nicest guys I have ever met in my life. Really fantastic. He was just starting his career. Uh, and yes, I think so too. And But I don't know what happened. Uh, well, hi. I don't know well, what happened through all that. And just kind of bring it in a big circle. Do you know who uh, did the jumps in the movie? Because Evil was not able to do his own jumps. I d didn't... Uh, our I don't know. Do you know? I Is do. it Gary Davis? It's our friend yeah. Gary Davis. Exactly. Yeah. Bringing it back around. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to, whenever we do this, I always like to quote what your peers have to say about you. And I'm not going to tell you who said this, but I'll give you a couple of clues. Um, this quote is from about 10 years ago, and I'm paraphrasing it a bit. I'm shortening it a bit, but it was right after the memorial for Evil Knievel. So you know about the time, and I yes. want you to see if you can guess who this is. It's a friend of yours. So um, here we go. First, let me say she is a beautiful lady with so much class it's easy to see why she was such a big star and why everyone speaks so highly of her. I'm very lucky to be able to call her my friend. Um, I'll just tell you, if Debbie Lawler is involved, it will be first class. Do you know who said that about you? Oh, it could be so many people. Well, <laughs> and I paraphrased it. I, I shortened it. <clears throat> so either Spanky Spangler or Doug Danger. Neither. Oh, was it Rex? Was it, it really? Rex? It was it was Lou Rocket. Oh, oh Lou. <laughs> it was Lou. Oh. And there's a I there's love a, him. There's a beautiful picture of you and Lou, and Lou is wearing his evil leathers, and you're in a mink. I don't know whether it's <laughs> the mink. Um, it was snowing up there. <laughs> it is. It looks damn cold. Um, it was cold. But I, you know, we um, we interviewed. Uh, uh, um, we've interviewed various people over the years, and I always like to try and include a quote from one of your peers, just mm -hmm. to show you how highly regarded you are within the industry. And it's obvious well, from looking at this. <laughs> well, as you should. I mean, you're an absolute groundbreaker. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, any woman who is involved in motorcycle jumping or motorcycle sport yeah, really yeah. owes you a huge debt of gratitude. Well, yeah. thank you so much. I mean, you know, I really appreciate that. I'm... 
like I said, I've, I've always been pretty humble and I just felt in my life that I was very lucky to be in the situation at the right place at the right time. That's really how I feel. I really, you know, thank God every day that I had the life that I had because it was incredible. Do you want to ask something, Liz? Or well, is I that do. Why your hands that is why my hands oh, up. Okay. I do. Um, I know we've we've had you on for a long time, and you're on the East Coast. I appreciate you staying up late for us. So I want to wrap this up, but I want to know. And this is I'm I'm hoping I know the answer, but let's just let's hope. Are you still writing today? Right now, I don't have a motorcycle. Okay. But I am, so right now, today, no, but I still ride. Yes. Yes. I just don't Yes, the motorcycle that cool. I want right now. What, so, and, yes, of course I still ride. So, I, I ride, you know. Any opportunity. I What and what bike is, what is your next bike going to be? That's what I want to know. I really don't know. Mm. I mean... Um, I don't know. I want to put together, like I said, I want to try to do some type of a, a, a big rally for women. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Um, Dirt you know, bike. I had a friend when I was up in Canada, he had a Valkyrie. Oh, Valkyrie is a good bike. Yeah. And I, I got on it and. It, I realized it was too big for me. It was too heavy for me. Yes. They're very heavy bikes. and But it was such a beautiful bike. So I've kind of X'd that one off. You know, I think now the older I get, I need to be a little bit safer. Um, so I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I love Hondas. I've always mm. been a big Honda person. <clears throat> Yamaha. I don't know. Emma says cool. Ooh, can I make a suggestion? <laughs> What do you guys think about yes. an NC700 for her? No. What do you mean no? She need, no, she needs something far more exciting <sighs> than an NC700. I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, Liza, she was a damn daredevil. I know. Now, come on now. Okay. You know? I, ooh, I got another one. I got another one. I think Emma might what? agree with me. How about a Triumph Bonneville? You know, actually, you know, Bonneville... A uh -huh. Bonneville would I be love, a good choice uh -huh. for you. I actually used to ride a Bonneville many, uh -huh. many, many years ago. I loved them. Yeah. Well, listen, good they, they've, good they've, gotten, they've gotten better, Debbie. <laughs> they don't leak oil all over your garage floor anymore. <laughs> well, I always used to say that that was the BSA. I had a BSA 650, <laughs> yeah. and that thing leaked oil all the time. Yes. So oh, goodness, Debbie. So you you mentioned you have a uh, you're working on a book. Do you have any idea when that will be coming out? You know, I don't. I mean, we. So um, last year, uh, the people that actually did my commercial, I. I the name of their company is Where Buffalo Roam. Mm -hmm. I hope they're listening to this. They are mm -hmm. the most incredible people. They came to the Live Evil 2 Jump. I had already done the commercial with them. And over the years, I had been asked by, by several different people, at least four different people, to do my life story. And I never really wanted to put it out there. I really, I just didn't feel like it was the time to do it. 
Right. But I met them, and I don't know if you have ever met someone and then just automatically clicked with them, and you just felt like they were kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt with these two people. I just I just fell in love with both of them and thought they were so amazing. And, you know, I was talking with them, and I said, you know, over over the years, I've had a lot of people approach me. I said, but I would really like for you guys, you know, to do my movie. And they had never done a movie. He, they're huge in the commercial industry. Um, and they said, yeah, they would like to do it. And I was so fortunate because they're two of the most creative people I believe I've ever met in my life. Uh, PJ and Megan are their names. And they are doing the movie. And uh, last year, we spent the whole year, well, about eight months, um, just scripting it on Zoom. Nice. Well, uh, what what perfect timing? Office. Because you know they're coming out with the miniseries about Evil Knievel. I did not know that. Yes, uh, they were scheduled to film right before COVID, so everything got delayed. But Milo Ventimiglia is playing Evil Knievel, young Evil Knievel. Wow. So that that yeah, wow. that's supposed to be happening this year. So it's perfect timing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so they're going to do it. So we finally got it script. Um, they are writing the treatment. I just they just sent me a sizzler reel, which was amazing, uh, so amazing. And they're getting ready to write the script, and you know, hopefully, um, it will be out in a couple of years. That is so, so awesome. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, try to try to release everything together, you know, the book and the movie. I I have one more question for you. Yes. When the book and movie come out, will you come back on our show? Absolutely. Yeah. I've had such a wonderful time. <laughs> I, I didn't get to hear from everyone, but uh, Mike, you were so quiet. Miss <laughs> Emma, you were just amazingly so amazing, so cool, and. I am so just flattered that you guys ask me on and amazed of all the history. I mean, you really know your stuff. You did your homework. We, That's really incredible. We are motorcycle well, nuts. Oh, wait, Chris has a question. Chris has a question. Chris, 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 wait, go. Go. So, so, Debbie, I've just been in awe listening to your story, and it's fantastic. What I, what I didn't hear, and I'm just curious, what possessed you when you decided, like, hey, I want to jump something with my motorcycle. What, <laughs> what possessed you to think that was a good idea and keep going? You know, uh, I was. What happened was um, the Broward Thrill Show. We were all out just riding for fun in the desert, mm-hmm. and there was an accident. And you know, growing up with motorcycles, I mean, they knew my first name in the ER. Truth, <laughs> truthfully, they did, and. The guy, they were so amazed that I was so cool, calm, and collected. And also, um, when the brother Billy Billy Brower was going back to get the truck because this girl needed to go to the hospital, like ASAP, and I said, "I'll come with you and help you, you know, load the bikes." And he said, "Well, you won't be able to keep up." I was right on his <laughs> fin, as my dad used to say, scuba diving, and he couldn't believe it. And um, so, you know. 
I guess they, they saw something in me and thought I could do it and gave me the opportunity. And I just loved it. I mean, from the very first time I jumped, I can't tell you, Chris, what a euphoric feeling it is when you're jumping motorcycles. It's just fabulous, really fabulous. Wow. Well, cool. you know, I, I, I think it's so awesome um, that you're ready to tell your story and the world is ready to listen. And this is the perfect time. I'm so glad that you're you're here to share it. And uh, what you did was crazy, but it was also, um, I mean, you're another one of the women who were forging the path to where people like myself didn't think anything of it when I was out right. riding my motorcycle, you know, because there were people like you who already were breaking that barrier to where not only it was acceptable again i didn't know i wasn't supposed to no, ride bikes. i mean i didn't know <laughs> i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna quantify it more than that yeah is both myself and liza really are very accepted in the motorcycle world and in 2020 we can move pretty freely within motorcycle culture Thanks to you. Yeah. There's a link. There's a living link, Debbie, between you and where we are right now. And the, the time is absolutely right to tell your story because the largest growing demographic in motorcycling right now is women over 50. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you know what? We're giving you a lot of credit. And you know what? I want to make sure your dad gets a lot of that credit because he gets Cool Biker Dad Award. I love to oh, I love yeah. hearing the story of your dad not only supporting you and getting you into it, but then fighting the yes. system to let let you in. So kudos to your dad. I want to make sure he gets acknowledged as well. You know, thank you so much. My father passed away uh, this past June. Oh, I'm and sorry. It, well, it was, we were really blessed. We took care of him. He lived with us in our home for the last five years of, our, of his life. And every day, we lived on the lake, and every day he looked at it, every day he was just happy to be alive. I mean, happy to have experienced all the stuff that he experienced in his life and for me i hope someday when i get really old and it's my time i can feel the same way but thank you guys so much i really appreciate it um and had just such a great time awesome great time talking to so, all of you <laughs> we'll let everyone know when the book and movie are, are coming out but if you are Anywhere near Bend, Oregon, go ahead and find your way over to the High Desert Museum. Check out this display. Get a get a view of the famous mink coat and your outfit and all this cool stuff. And um, yeah, and make sure you you also think of Debbie's dad when you're there. So Debbie, thank you very much for coming on. I so appreciate uh, the opportunity to share your story. Thank you so much. Thank all of you. Um, it was really my pleasure. And I know this goes out to all, all of my female motorcycle riders. Thank you guys so much over the years, the support and the love and the fan mail that I've received. It's just been amazing and, and crazy. 
Thank you so much. No, no problem. MSS cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Debbie. We will let you go, and we're going to keep on chatting about other motorcycle stuff. But um, thank you for staying up late. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Okay. All right. Ciao, Debbie. Yeah. So, and we are also joined by another misfit now. Bagel is here. Oh, the Bagler. The Bagler. Hello, darling. Talk about Oregon. Yes, I, I've been a bit late. I'm sorry to so sorry, sorry to have missed uh, the show so far, but I've been very busy. I've been loading up a 26 foot moving truck with 14 bikes. Oh, well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry, Bagel. If you want to be late to the podcast, you have to you have to bring a note from your mum. <laughs> I will have her send you one. All right. Well, that'll be okay then, and don't try and forge it neither. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is this is quite an engineering feat to to fit 14 bikes into a U-Haul truck that has no tie downs on the floor. Dude. Yep. Dude, I've been there when I moved out here. I only had three bikes, but they're big. I have my GPZ 1100, my R1100 RT, and my Roadstar 1600. And I had those bikes strapped in, and the movers built a plywood wall on the other Hmm. side, and that's where all my furniture was. I was so horrified when the truck got out here to California, and I opened it up. The plywood wall had collapsed, and all the furniture had fallen down on top of the bikes. Oh, no. Yeah. So I had, like, rub marks, but my uh, GPZ 1100 that was beautiful had a broken uh, fairing and a snapped handlebar. And I was able to get it all fixed, but it was heartbreaking. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. That, uh, that that that's almost as bad as the uh, the time when uh, a bunch of us had sh- our bikes shipped for a scooter rally with a, like an actual vehicle shipper, and they had a, a like a fifth wheel trailer that they tied all the bikes down. Everything was strapped down properly. Well, then they decided that they wanted to use their fifth their fifth wheel trailer to transport a car instead. So they had the guy towing towing all the bikes get go to a U-Haul place, get a U-Haul trailer, oh, no. and just stuffed all the bikes inside a U-Haul trailer, st- like stacked them up like sardines with no straps, and drove them from San Diego up to San Francisco like that. Uh, when they arrived, there were ten total bikes in the back of the trailer. <laughs> Well, Bagel, you know how we always say how crazy you are for doing the long-distance rides that you do on yep. a scooter? Do you know what's crazier? Long-distance moves? No. <laughs> no. You know what's crazier? Long-distance rides on a Sportster like Chris does. Oh. Chris, wow. how, how many iron butts have you done? Well, certified rides, 15, but I've also finished three iron butt rallies. Oh. Wow. Nice. That is hardcore shit, man. How many miles can you go on a tank? You said like 400? 400. <laughs> wow. wow. That's better than Bagel's Vespa. Yeah. Now, wow. I can't go that far, but yeah. the bike can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's the, limit. the human factor is always the, the limiting uh, limiting factor yeah. when you get to that, that, type of, that type of range. Dude, I want to know, what the hell? Why, why are you on a Sportster doing long-distance rides? Well, that's the bike. That that was my first brand new bike. So my very ah. first bike, which I it was the one you, know, you knew would make it. it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> my very first bike was my Suzuki GT five fifty, which I know Emma likes. Oh yes. <laughs> now. Um, but you know that actually, I had stopped riding for five or six years, 
and then told my wife one morning, you know what? It's time. I'm buying a bike. So we went out that two days later and bought, a, bought my sports are brand new. And at that time I had no thoughts of doing long distance riding. And I put maybe a thousand miles on it in the first year. That was all going back and forth to a um, air museum that I volunteer at. And then a couple of years later, I finally just decided, you know, I, I shared an office with a guy that was doing this stuff. And I'm like, well, if he can do it and he's six foot tall and bigger than I am, why can't I? And since that was my bike, that's what I started on. Mm. And now, 280,000 miles later, I'm like, well, why change? Wow. <laughs> this is fantastic. And Bagel, I just want to bring you up to speed. We are being joined by yes. two stunt misfits. Yes. Chris, you've already spoken to. Mm -hmm. And then there's Mike with his hoida toidles. <laughs> yeah, look at the two hoida toidles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at him. Look at Mordrick's turtle. He wants to join the podcast too. I know. Yes. <laughs> you need to make him up. <laughs> yeah, she, she swung by a few times. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Bagel, it's great to meet you and to meet you, everybody else. Um, yeah, nice to meet you too. It, Thank, thanks for the invita invitation to be here. It's, it's, it's fun to get a chance to actually see you all face-to-face, -face, uh, you know, virtually across the distance. Yes. Well, well, you know, it's it's quite fun actually, you know, hearing the show and seeing the show come together and actually being a part of it. So I still get a kick out of it even after these many years. Um, and Zoom isn't the best. You know, the best is when we're all crammed in the studio and, firing off each other in person but of course that's not going to happen for a little while yet oh, yeah and the studio behind us the, the studio you know, yep. here's the, the train room here's usually <laughs> where bagel sits and recording <laughs> and yeah so uh yeah thank you guys for coming on you know i just realized um it's not the same as when we used to do live shows here but yeah. embracing if we're going to be doing zoom and we're all in different locations i mean bagel's moving but you know, he's still going to be on the show. Why yeah. can't we have other misfits out there? And that's the thing. There's so many people who I love it when they email us and tell us their stories and what they've done. Um, there's so many people actually responded. I just picked you two. You're the two lucky ones. Right. Um, <laughs> we're going to have future stunt misfits on because, uh, I mean, we're all the same. We're we're all bikers. We love However, the biker shit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them on the spot Ooh. Right uh -oh. now. Uh oh, you're in trouble. Uh -oh. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know guys, what's about to happen. Guys, it's just us five. So it's <laughs> us five. Nobody else. Nobody else gonna hear this. Hold on, I'm gonna turn off the recording. So I'm gonna start with you, Mike. Okay. Tell me something about yourself that I'd be surprised to know. Now you need to think about this as well, Chris, because I'm gonna ask you the same <laughs> question. And and can you follow that up with your up-the-butt bike? Yes. Mm. So it's really two questions. So tell us something surprising about you and tell us your up-the-butt bike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something about me that is a little surprising. Oh, well, my God. Longest... I like turtles. I, I do like turtles. <laughs> uh, so, okay. I, I, so this won't make any sense to anybody who's actually listening to this, but there is a 165-gallon aquarium behind yes. me. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this is completely unrelated to motorcycles, but I married a woman who had, at the time, a turtle this big. It was yes. the size of a Kennedy half dollar. Yeah. Yes. Hence, its name is Fitzgerald. Yes. <laughs> 
And then, as you can see, Fitzgerald has grown. That oh, yeah. turtle's been giving me the stink eye all night. I want yeah. you to know. <laughs> so Fitzgerald then started to lay eggs. Oh. And so we discovered that he is not actually a he. So no. he is actually a she. So uh, uh, the turtle behind me is now Ella Fitzgerald. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, is and you'll also see about six goldfish swimming around that were lunch that didn't get eaten about a year ago. Oh, good. Oh, um, <laughs> so, how long? How long have you been married, Mike? Uh, twelve years. Twelve, 12 years. years. So, okay. And, right. and and so we we've been married uh, twelve years. My wife. Uh, she did not know that she married a motorcycle rider. I was about to say, uh, because, how many bikes does she let you have? At the moment, we have one. Oh, uh, I, oh, I know, I know. This oh, is nasty the business. So, so, well, the thing is, it's not, it's not, uh, it's a, it's a simple size of the last garage problem. Mm. Yeah. Our last Emma garage. says full. Yeah, I know. I know it. I know it. Uh, my, my last garage, we had room for one, and it was, and so the, I, I ride an uh, RT, um, mm-hmm. and that, for me, for the commuting that I do, for the riding I do, was if I had to have only one bike, that's the bike that fit the best for what I do. Um, my, that's not your up-the-butt bike, though. It is not. It is All not. Right. Come on, and, spill it. Uh, spill so, it. Okay, so... All right, so I have no rational reason for this other than I just love the looks of them. I sat on ooh, one when I ooh, first looked good at a one. Reason as what kind of KTM is it? Actually, it's a Moto Guzzi. Ah. Oh, ooh, I like this man already. Mm. Yeah. Bill yeah. the bean. Oh, so, so way back when, when I first started riding, because I started riding about 20, 15 or 20 years ago, and yes. then I had about a 15-year break in the middle uh, yep. just because of grad school and finances and stuff. Um, but the first thing I sat on was a Moto Guzzi California mm-hmm. uh, wave. And like, yeah, the older like, ones, yeah. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, like, those things just are so weird looking. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, I mean, like. They're kind of I, bulbous ne- in certain places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and, and so I have never... I've never had a chance to actually ride one, right? But I sat on one, and it's always just stuck with me. Like that—that's silly. And so, like, that's a thing just for sheer nostalgia. That's a—that's right. the one I want. You know, it's that's it's an a, Italian Harley. Yeah, yeah. That's as nice great one. a reason as ever. Right next, All right, Chris. <laughs> Chris, how many bikes does your wife let you have? At the moment, I have five. Okay, good, 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 good wife. Good wife. Good job. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I have a fantastic wife. She supports me in all of this. Crazy. See, Mike, you might want to make some notes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk yeah. To no, her. I, yes. Okay. I have a bigger have garage a, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm shopping. there's a problem there because I have two bikes in my garage. I have two bikes in a storage unit. And the BMW F650 GS I just bought sits outside under a cover. Oh. No. I've, I've, my bikes have outgrown my storage capacity. We should all we should all hope we have bagels problem, which is yes. his new house. Yes. The garage is way too yes. big. He's gonna have to fill it. I mean, what else are you gonna do? Exactly. So, yeah. so Chris, darling, tell us something that would surprise us about you, and tell us your up the butt bike. Let's see. I have a wife, two kids, and five grandchildren and a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, my wife is wonderful, Michelle. She lets me do pretty much almost anything I like. Oh, wait, I got like, a question. Have you gotten sure. any of your kids or grandkids into writing? 
Are you a cool, cool moto dad? So my kids aren't interested in it. Oh. My older daughter's two sons are both in, in the bikes. In fact, Good job. Oh, there you go. Youngest, there you go. The youngest is like two or three, and this is actually, I guess, their, their other grandfather. He rides as well. Nice. Uh, he had him in a Harley dealer, and he basically ran up, hopped on a bike, and said, I want this one. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, you know, he can't quite have it yet because yeah. he can't even reach the pedals. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. good. You planted the seed. That time will come. That time will yeah. come. Nice. So, Chris, darling, what is, what is your, what's your, what's your up-the-butt bike, sweetie? Yeah. Tell us all you about it. I've, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Mm. You so, knew we'd ask you. Wait, is there any chance yeah. it's also a Motoguzzi? Not a, not a chance. I'm thinking <laughs> the, the flying no, fortress. bike. So my my up the butt bike, you know, I'm I'm really into history and Ooh. so and, and and old things, old Ooh. mechanical things. Yes. So my up the butt bike would probably be like a 1920s or 30s bike, not too picky, you know, right. Harley or, or anything. But I have a double up the butt bike. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, is this allowed, Liza? Is it, it double sided, double double ended? What's going on here? <laughs> double barrel. It's a double dumper. Chris my, is going to drop great, a deuce on the show. My yeah. great-grandfather rode. Yes. Ooh. And I grew up, my father had a machine shop, and I grew up with this two-foot-by-three-foot poster on the wall of him riding his 1910 Harley-Davidson. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. if I could find that specific bike, which I yes. realize is probably next to impossible, yeah, that would know. be my double up the bike. But Just so you know, that should be your first Go. answer next time. That's the one. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, but that's not as fun as saying double up the bike. <laughs> I wanted, you know, I wanted to let you know, Chris, when you get into the really, really old stuff, <clears throat> It's quite different. It's very, very different. Out of all of the contraptions I've shown up at the Misfits on, my most memorable, and I think the most memorable for the Misfits, was when I showed up on a 1929 Rudge. Do you remember that, Mm -hmm. Liza? Mm -hmm. With the exposed valve gear? And riding a really, really vintage bike... (laughs) It's it's a, such a different yeah. experience, um, and I'm as I'm getting older, I'm kind of getting more into it. Um, I think maybe my next bike, I think maybe a hundred years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, my, my grandfather had antique cars, so I, you know, he had you know nineteen thirty-two Chevy and you know forty-six Ford Woody wagon right, right. and. 1910 Regal Raceabout. So I I grew up around these vehicles, which was unbelievably fortunate. So yeah, it's there's nothing like a piece of history is best way to put it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think just as Mike said about his up the butt bike, you know the Moto Guzzi, there's a reverence if you hold these vintage things mm-hmm. in reverence in your heart. It's a wonderful thing to behold. And let's be honest with you, that original Moto Guzzi that you enjoy so much, Mike, that's a 45-year-old bike now. Yeah. So, you know, time moves on. Yeah. But, and, and I got my last bike that I had before the, the BMW was a 35-year-old bike. I had a, a, a CB750. Yeah. Okay. I absolutely loved. Timeless. Um, Those bikes are timeless. Yeah, it was great. 
it was great. It was great. The, the, the challenge was my wife didn't feel comfortable on it. She just didn't fit comfortably on the back. Mm -hmm. But one yeah. of the things that was different was just uh, it, all the controls, the brakes, all of that stuff just feels different, you know, and that's mm -hmm. only a 30 something year old bike. Yeah. I can't even right, imagine exactly. something that much older. Well, you know, if you if you mess around with vintage British stuff like I do, you you have to get used to the fact that the bike has no brakes. And when I say it's got no brakes, I mean no brakes. Well, and how so you really it, have to plan? Is, is it a leather strap on a wooden wheel? Is that how it starts? I think that would I think that would be more effective. And, you know, I think it'd be more effective putting your feet down and the friction between your shoe sole and the tarmac. Um, and. And Emma, how hard was it to get used to? So, like, on so a buddy of mine had an old Triumph with the gears on the right side. Oh no! It's it. How how hard is that to switch back and forth? I'm part of a unique generation that because I grew up riding British bikes when I was poor and Japanese bikes when I was a little more flush uh -huh. during my first like year two years in motorcycling, among them. A GT 550, of course, Chris, and Triumph Bonnevilles and BSAs. I'm completely ambidextrous, mm. so I can. It, I'm happy on either bike with the right foot shift, even with the classic British right-hand shift, one up, four down pattern. Mm -hmm. And that's the classic British shift pattern. Anybody who's written an AMC, a Norton, or Royal Enfield will get used to shifting with their right foot. One up, four down. Or one up, three down. I beg your pardon. Yeah, I believe... It's completely reversed. I rode a... I think the last bike I rode like that was a Matchless. Yeah, Matchless has yeah. got an AMC <clears throat> transmission yeah. in it. And it's the same. So... Um, but I'm lucky that I'm I'm very happy on whatever I ride. But guys, I'm going to have to love you and leave you. I'm meeting a client right now who's banging on my front door. I may be able to come back in a couple of minutes. I'll see if you're all still here. Well, I'm going to start in emails. So you go handle that. And I'm going to read some emails and we can see if uh, we can help some people. Uh, Bagel, night, I also darling. sent you a couple of emails. Uh, there's one... In particular, from Australia, I want you to look for it because that one is just for you. Um, but let's start yes. this one. This is from uh, Chase. And he says, hey, Misfits, I've been a listener since uh, episode 100 or so. We're nearing 400, guys. Can you believe that? Wow. He says, I will keep it short wow. and sweet. I've been riding for about eight years. Well, recently I was in a situation with my in-laws where they tried to talk me out of riding and selling my bikes. These family members what? of the type that do not like motorcycles, nor will they ever be motorcyclists. My question is, how do you guys deal with negativity towards motorcycling amongst close, uh, you know, non-riding family members? Mm. Uh, he says he lives in Washington and almost exclusively commutes on his bike. The only way to get around rush hour traffic is in the carpool lanes. Uh, till lane splitting is legal, it's the only way to shave 15 minutes off of his commute. So um, I never really had... I personally never really had any friction. My first bike I hid from my family because my dad worked for the Department of Highway Safety. Um, but my parents also know that they can't stop me from doing anything. 
I've had my parents tell me that they would cut me out of the will if I did something, and I still did it, and I'm still in the wheel. will. <laughs> uh, they just know if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, so I've never experienced that because um, when when you're steadfast in this is you know this is what I love doing. Uh, don't ask me to stop doing it. I mean, they can't get in the way. They just they don't understand. I don't know. Do you guys have you had that had any friction to stop? Uh, well, I had friction to start. Um, I grew <laughs> up in a go. house. I had a, I grew up in a house where you just didn't do that. Like writing was just not available. Mm. Um, uh, it, it just, and the first time I was ever on a motorcycle, um, happened when a, one of my mom's friends showed up on his Goldwing, mm. and I got to ride on the back and it was, I went around the block, right? Right. Like, but my mom like wouldn't speak to this friend for weeks because she had put her son on on the back of a motorcycle. And then I didn't ride again until I was like 25 years old and I was out of the house because it was just very clear that was a thing that was not acceptable. Right. Um, and, and, wow. and so part of part of what has been my observation with people who are negative to it is they've only seen sort of the worst case scenarios. And so maybe uh, some of the conversations I've had is sort of give people, uh, here's all the safety precautions. Here's the mm-hmm. gear that I wear. Here's how, here's how the rider training works. Like sort of explaining sort of what are some of the risk mitigations? Like, Ooh. cause obviously it's risk, not risk-free, but help, how do you mitigate that? That sure. gives me a good idea because when I was uh, quite, when I was young, I remember I realized, Oh, I couldn't afford a good helmet, huh. but I asked my parents to buy me one. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I got a good helmet. Um, maybe you ask your in-laws to buy you a Quinn helmet. <laughs> right. Right. Which, by the way, you know, I've been playing with the one they sent me. That thing is so light. It's like two point something pounds. Oh, it's amazing. Whoa. Everyone out here was like, this is so amazing. Uh, get them to buy you a Quinn helmet with the agreement that if anything happens, they will be the first to know. There was an accident. How about that? There you go. I don't know. Just a Do suggestion. Do you want to know? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know. Bagel, did you uh, find the email I sent you? I did. What you got there? Okay. Uh, this email is from Rob C. There we go. And it's titled Query from Australia Standard or Bar End Mirrors. <laughs> and Rob writes Hello, Eliza from sunny Weo, New South Wales, Australia. Love the podcast. It makes time spent outside happily working on a small farm even more of a delight. A question for the redoubtable Miss Emma and the team, if I may. Which are better, or is it a style thing? Standard standard mirrors or bar-end mirrors? All my bikes have had standard ones. An 06 Honda VT750 Shadow an 01 GL1800 Goldwing, an 84 Honda C90 Step-Through. You call them Cubs, I think. Mm -hmm. This one is my baby, completely stock and only 2,300 kilometres, as well as my current ride, an 07 Ducati Sport Classic GT1000, heritage red, of course, with Tommy plates, the best-sounding thing I've ever heard. Grateful for your views. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Cheers, Rob. P.S. Yeah. Even even though the C90 Cub isn't technically a scooter, 
The engine isn't on the swing arm. I'm loving Bagel's contributions and there the references to long trips on small things. Good luck <laughs> to the move to Oregon, man. Thanks a lot, Rob. PPS, my up-the-butt bike, a new Multistrada 950S. PPS, <laughs> why is Jim naked? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's up there with why Why did uh, Debbie decide to jump? Because she could. That's why Jim's naked. Because the why, kids why are grown up and blue? gone. He right. can. He can walk around with no pants if he wants to. Um, I have an answer to the question. So yes. regular mirrors or bar end mirrors? And this is very simple. You just have to ask yourself a question. Do you want to look cool or do you want to see behind you? It's simple. Well, that, de that depends on the mirror, though. Hey, hey, I have bikes that I prefer to look cool than to see behind me. Mm -hmm. And I have other bikes I prefer to see behind me than look cool. Right. That's but it. So you're saying that you can't see behind you with bar end mirrors? No, not really. You have to kind of like well, look under your elbow. It's, well, but it's that, all, that all depends on the bar end mirror, though, because most of them are just like these tiny little mirrors that yeah. are right at the end of the bar ends, and you can't see that yeah. far down. But there are some bar end mirrors that have like stems that will come up and so yeah. put the mirrors like up where you can see them. But, and those are really nice, elegant, uh, but know, elegant solutions. Still, the whole point is you don't want to take your eyes too far off of the line of sight of the road. Right, right. Looking down to the bar end, you are. Right, but that's why I'm saying it depends on the bar end mirror. Sure. Most of them, like like I said, are at the bar, but the ones that have the risers that come up from the bar, those those work much better. I mean, absolutely. If you're building a cafe racer, it has to have bar end mirrors. But but one thing that I will say too is that uh, anything you put on the bar ends is very is going to be much more likely to hit things. So if you're lane splitting, it's going to make it harder to do that because you're yeah. going to be hitting other people's mirrors with it. Or um, also, it, when you're maneuvering it around, you're going to bump into things more with them. Um, and if you drop the bike, that's going to be the first thing to go. Well, and also, I don't, I don't know if you remember this bagel, but when we were doing uh, shooting ride with Norman Reedus, yeah, and sometimes they fall out we're at a stop light. Mm. my mirror fell out norman had to stop and pick it up and hand it to me at a stoplight i was like I ah, thanks because <laughs> my bike looks cool man yeah exactly well i mean i hope that answers it and chris i'm putting you on the spot i sent you an email to read because you also have a lovely accent are, do you, are oh, you able I to? Even know I, had I one. know are you able to <laughs> access your email real quick and uh read uh, the last email I will it's, do my best. All right. Uh, and this is, Bagel, you remember, uh, I, I, know, I don't know if you're, a couple of weeks ago, we had a nice couple come here uh, to the garage to look for some gear uh, because they're just, they're getting back into riding um, okay. and they needed some gear. And uh, his wife, Audrey, was able to find, the week before, somebody donated to us a very nice Vanson jacket. Right. And his wife is really tiny, and so is the Vanson jacket. I thought it would fit nobody. It was and too small for everyone. And so she got that jacket. Well, now they're looking yeah. for a bike. All right. Okay, I have it. All right, let's go for it. Okay. Hi, I'm looking at a 2011 Triumph Tiger 800 for two-up touring with Audrey, my Vanson jacket warrant-wearing partner. Mm -hmm. The bike has 9,700 miles with lots of expensive aftermarket luggage and protection. Asking 6,500. If I can get pros and cons, please. Things I don't like, metal tank, valve check every 12,000 miles, things I like, 
engine, Triumph badge. Any input is appreciated. Thanks, Robert. All right. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think we can help here. And Emma, we just, I'm we back, just, baby. perfect time. And we just read an email. Remember the lovely couple who came a couple of weeks ago and got the Vanson jacket? Robert yes. and, and Audrey. Well, Robert is looking at getting a bike, and there's a bike he found, which is a 2011 Triumph Tiger 800. It has 9,700 miles on it, lots okay. of luggage and aftermarket uh, sparkles, and they're looking. Uh, they're asking 6,500. And he wants to know what what we think of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, the Tiger 800 is quite a desirable bike. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, Tigers come in two flavors. They come in the 800 flavor and then the 1200 mm -hmm. Exploder flavor. <laughs> and the 1200 is quite a physically big thing. It's very, very tall and it's very, very heavy. And it's a bit like sitting on the battleship Pachomkin um, and going down, the, going down the highway. So the Tiger 800 is kind of like the entry-level adventure <laughs> bike. And it's quite popular. Um, I like them. They sound great. They do great. 9,700 miles is not a great deal. I'd say it's a great price. Yeah, I mean, a two-up riding with the luggage, 6,500 bucks, sounds good. Um, he's he's a bit concerned, Emma, about doing a valve check every 12,000 miles, but um, I don't know. It's I, easy on that bike. I think, you know what, I think that that's a great bike that retains its value pretty well, that you can try right. it out for six months if you don't like and you it, know you can flip um, it back when i was working at the triumph dealer we had quite a few clients who had a hundred thousand miles on them yeah so it's a robust engine the thing is with triumphs you always got to remember with triumphs spend the money on oil mm. spend the money on good oil that mm -hmm. means motul 300v a gip oil um Actually, it's not a GIP anymore. It's NE. Um, I am. Just spend the money on fully synthetic, high-quality oil because they stretch the, val uh, the oil change intervals to 6,000 miles. A normal uh, mineral oil can't handle a 6,000-mile interval. It'll break mm -hmm. down in that engine. So you have to use synthetic. But as long as you keep the oil changed regularly and just stick a feeler gauge in the valve clearances once in a while, that's easily a 100,000-mile engine. There you go, Robert. Easily. We like it. There you go. Um, so tra-la-la. Hey, and I wanted to thank uh, Chris and Mike for coming on being Stunt Misfits. What do you guys think? Debbie Lawler, pretty cool, huh? Oh, that was, that was uh, I, great. I, I, I was blown away. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't register the name when you said in the email, and it was just, again, I was just in awe. That's, I couldn't think of anything to ask because I was busy listening to her. Yeah, I, I, I went on and I watched the videos of, of both of her big jumps, the, yeah. you know, the, the record-setting one, and then the one where she had, had gone down, and, and it just, it's amazing to me what she did. Uh, any of, any of those folks jumping like that and then setting a world record. Like, that's just amazing that anybody would want to do wow. that, let alone do Big, it that well. Bagel, you miss the story she's talking about when she broke Evil Knievel's record wow. in an indoor jump. And yeah. it wasn't the jump that was the dangerous part. It was the ramp they had to build to get up to speed. And then uh -huh. when she landed, she had yeah. to go underneath a, a, a low thing and she had to duck and then oh. put the bike down and... and, and crash into mattresses because you Whoa. ran into there was a wall so Jeez. yeah i know it's like 
Well, Whoa. the landing is always the most dangerous. But part, you don't but see that like, on the video. No extra. When, when you see the video, it just looks like she goes out into a tunnel. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. It, it, to know that she's actually crashing into a pile of mattresses <laughs> on the other end. Like, wow. Wow. Yeah, and I'm uh, sorry yeah. I missed the interview. I'm definitely uh, looking yeah. forward to listening to that on the podcast while I'm driving up to Oregon tomorrow. What a cool lady. And I'm so glad you guys were able to come on. And and also, you know, this is a time when I, I thank my Patreon supporters, which, uh, Chris, I think, are you the Patreon supporter? Yeah. Here? Thank you very much. Mike, are you a Patreon supporter? Not yet. I'm going to okay. have to fix that. I, hey, I... Mike, big you thanks. better stop spending money on turtles and start <laughs> spending money on Patreon. I'll, I'll sign the turtle up as the Patreon supporter. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but hey, big thanks. And I hope that, you know, you're getting your money's worth because, like I said, I'm, I'm reaching out. I'm trying to get bigger and bigger guests and, 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 you know, even more amazing stories. And hey, you guys got to be on here and ask questions. Um, and we're going to be having some more stunt missiles it's come up thank you to everyone who emailed us i've got actually a sign up list uh for uh, into next month we're going to be having some stunt misfits join cool. us who knows who you will get to talk to <laughs> exactly so bagel you're you're out of here you're leaving I, Santa Cruz. I am leaving leaving tomorrow to take my bikes and pickup truck up to oregon then turning around the next day coming back uh loading up the rest of my stuff on wednesday and then final trip up on thursday well, we will miss you, buddy, but uh, sounds I'll like you planned you. it, so you'll be back in time for the next recording. Yep, I will be on, <laughs> on the podcast on Sunday from my shop, my expansive shop in Venita that will I be know. full of stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, and big shout out to all the other misfits out there. I do love it. Like I said, we are all, I mean, we're, we're, have you all heard of the, the term foamer? I mean, we are really, yeah, no. They call train guys this. They, you know, they see a train and they start to foam. So excited. Oh, I mean, yes. that's the thing. <laughs> all the misfits out there, we all get it. We all understand each other. We, we all yeah. love it so much. So thank you guys for joining. Um, big thanks to everyone for listening and, and helping to support us. And Bagel, thank you for being our sound guy all these years and being so dependable. My pleasure. I'm glad I was able to contribute and make the podcast what it is. All right. So we're about to get out of here. We're about to do roll call. I'm going to make it easy for you guys. We're going to go in alphabetical order. Okay. Oh, hang on. All right. Emma's confused already. So we're no, gonna no, go I got it. No, okay. I got you got it. it. I got right. it. I got so it. So you can know your order. Okay. So thank you, everyone. I think it's time to get out of here. This is Liza. There you go. Chris. Mike. And it's Emma Darling, because I went out of order. <laughs> <laughs> and we are out of here. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. cool.